Presented by RomulusIT.com, offering remote support for common computer problems. Recording in progress. <laughs> did you hear that? I did. That's the first time yeah. I've heard that 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 come on. That's the first time I've had that notification. Um, Landry.audio, listen, like, and subscribe. Today, we are speaking with heavy metal musician Dino Cazares, best known as one of the founders of Fear Factory. Their first album was released in 1992, and Dino's been good enough to give us some of his time today to talk about the band's upcoming 10th studio album, Aggression Continuum. Dino's in California, and I'm in the great city of Newcastle, Australia. So how are things on that side of the planet, Dino? Oh, very beautiful over here right now. Nice and sunny in California. It's nice and warm. Uh, we have a holiday weekend coming up for us next week. So it's going to be like a four day weekend. It's going to be great. Yeah, cool. We're just going into winter over here, but you know, it's, I'm, I'm Canadian originally. So winter in Australia comparatively is it's, it's not that bad, but none of that, yeah. a lot of the houses are comparable here. to California winter. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Cool. It's always a little bit different to talk though, because we're in Celsius. So there's always a bit of math mathematics, I guess, when people are saying, oh, you know, it's 55, 60 over there. And I go, Whoa. What is that? It's 10, maybe? I don't know, 15 or something. <laughs> yeah, somewhere on there. <laughs> cool. Um, so first of all, there uh for anyone who follows the band, I've been a listener for just over for over just over 20 years, uh roughly probably around that that time point. Um, there's been a lot of drama recently online, which includes the fact that uh, you know, while this <laughs> so album is due for release shortly, uh it was recorded a, a few years back, from my understanding. Um uh -huh. and there were some issues with getting it mixed and released. So why don't we just kind of start the process there and, and then we'll we'll dive right into it. Well, we completed a record in 2017 uh, and uh, Burton had turned the record into the record company, but I wasn't exactly too happy about it. Um, but unfortunately, because of the legal uh, litigation that was going around, uh, going on during the, um, for the trademark name, you know, we had two ex-band members that were fighting us for the trademark name. Mm. And so because of those legalities, it kept us, uh, uh, you know, not being able to use a name for a good four plus years. Right. Mm. So, you know, the record pretty much just sat there in the, in the record company's office, you know, because we just couldn't do anything with it until we got past these legal issues. And so once I was able to regain the trademark ownership in 2020, I was able to go and improve uh, some of the elements that I felt that were missing on the record. And one of those in particular was the drums because the album originally had programmed drums. So I thought it would be best to, you know, bring in the, the, you know, the live drums, bring in Andy Sneap to mix the album, bring in Damien Reno to produce the album and, um, and have uh, various keyboards play on the record as well. Keyboardists. Okay, cool. Because, you know, Go ahead. Uh, because the, the nuances uh, of these songs are what makes everything. You know what I mean? Uh, you need tension and release. When I write these songs, I always like to build up the verses as tension and you need this release. Uh, so uh, for me, the riffing and the drumming uh, syncopated as one. Uh, like you're like you're on a battlefield, you know. Like there's a lot of tension there, and between you know, man and machine battling out in the battlefield, and then you have these beautiful melodic choruses that come in, melodic vocals that come in, and like kind of like give you hope at the light or the light at the end of the tunnel, and kind of give you hope to keep going on. And 
that's the beauty about you know writing these songs and i think that adding the drums definitely added more of a tension and release type of human element to the to the record that made it even better Cool. Um, there's, you know, before sort of talking into this album, you've, you've got into a lot of material that I was hoping we can discuss today, because I said this, you know, this is my first opportunity to talk to you. I've been listening to the band for, I think, you know, I got introduced to them uh, as a birthday gift. I think when I was in my teens and still in high school, I got I got obsolete, I think in 98 or somewhere around that period. And then, uh, you know, that was the introduction to demanufacture and then everything else along those lines. And I finally got to see you guys around um, when you put out Digimortal in that time period, I think it's probably early 2000s around then. And there's quite a unique history, as you said, sort of following trademarks and guys in and out of the band. And it's, um, it's I'd, I'd like to uncover that because again, we only get to uh, read effectively through music gossip sites about what's going on. So it would be kind of interesting mm -hmm. to know a little bit more about that. Um, you you had mentioned uh, Burton C. Bell, who is the longtime frontman for the band, and is kind of part of mm -hmm. of this acrimony that's going through this new album. It was announced, I think, a, a few months ago that he had he said he's done with the band effectively. So eight months mean, ago, eight eight months ago now, and <laughs> he's he's kind of effectively tried to at least the impression that I get online is, is almost kind of wash his hands associated with this and and kind of say I'm putting it down and I'm moving on to something new now. Was there any dialogue with that with you? Because it kind of sounds, as you said, that, that the album was recorded. Um, some things were going on in the background. And this seemingly for a lot of fans like myself popped out of nowhere. Yeah, uh, we know we, we have I haven't spoke to him since probably about 2018 mm -hmm. or maybe late 2017. It's probably the last time we spoke. Um, yeah, he pretty much uh, we knew at that point that he was done. Um, and even now. When the record's coming out, he hasn't said a peep about it, nothing. Uh, and, it, you know, all the improvements that I made on the record only benefits him and, and myself, you know. It benefits everybody, actually, the fans, him, myself. So we're all benefiting from this. And, yeah, he hasn't said anything about the record at all. So it's just been so, silent. So, so the, the announcement would have been news to you as well at the time? Well... No, I kind of already knew behind the scenes that this was that, that that's how it gets, that's what was going on. I mean, what do you what do you how how would you take it if somebody didn't talk to you for three years? Well, yeah, but you tend to hear <laughs> so, so, in bands you tend to hear sort of these announcements pop up from time to time, and and I guess some of the things that. I guess what was swirling around there and the other things that I had heard, as you said, it was originally recorded, it was drum machine. And, and that led you to having to take the step of looking at um, a GoFundMe campaign to bring the record, I guess what you're saying, kind of uh, up to par. And I guess the question that I have from there, you know, having been associated with the, the music industry now for 30 years, has it changed so drastically to the point that you need to go out and fund the release yourself because i mean you know fear factory is not a small name in in the metal community so it seems well like, like quite a step to to, to have to things. lean on people and not the company two things two things you got to understand we were going we were all going through a legal battle and that is not uh cheap right mm -hmm. it drove us to bankruptcy. Bankruptcy means you got no money. Yeah. You're broke and you got to pay people back and you don't have the money to do it. So you file for bankruptcy. Two, you depleted all your financial resources from the record company. So you can't ask them for any more money because you've already used up all the money that they gave you. So it, it, the money's gone. So the only way for me to make the improvements on the record was to reach out to the fans and start a GoFundMe campaign. Mm. That's how that happens. And does that put you in potentially even further trouble if you 
Um, I mean, if the record company is not going to give you any any more money to complete the project, and you still got to, and you don't, I assume there's legal it's obligations that not to that as going well. To, it's not that they're not going to, is that they already have, if you understand what I'm saying. We've already used all our resources from the record company. You can't, it's okay, you, you got to look at it this way. They can only give you so much. The record companies don't have a lot of much money anymore. Sure. So they can't, they can only give you so much, right? And once you ask, once you've gotten so much money, then, and they they cannot give you any more. That's just how that happens. They're like, look, we will give you permission to go ahead and add these new elements, or or to improve the record. Sure, we'll give you the permission to do that, but we just unfortunately have no more money to give. Mm, fair enough. And that's just where it was at. And you had mentioned um, earlier. You said you know you've used different keyboards and things. So is is Reese um, Fulber involved in this record at all? Yeah, Reese Forward played on a song called Monolith and I want to say Parts of Disruptor. Um, but yeah, we had four or five different keyboard players on this record. Okay. And what does that do to you? Is that just a, a time constraint to kind of um, get more session-based keyboards in on the album? Um, just just because everybody has a different, pers different perspective on how these songs should sound. I think the keyboards are the icing on the cake because the keyboards can also help improve the song, help uh, make some parts stronger. It can also control where the outcome of the song is going to be. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so having like Igor from Yes, uh, Max Karen, uh, he's a killer guitarist and a keyboard player. Um, you have um, Giuseppe Bassi based out of Italy. He's a great, great key modern keyboardist. He's more futuristic type of stuff. And then you have, um, I think that's it, yeah. And then, then Damien, who is our engineer and producer, we also, both of us did some keyboard stuff on the record as well too. So I think all those different elements added more dynamics to the songs. It's, uh, it's funny that you mentioned having, you know, different keyboardists and session musicians can, can change the overall sound of it. Um, in, in preparation for this interview, uh, last night I was listening to some, you know, Fear Factory facts and things that you can find online. And and, and I hadn't realized, um, originally you guys, your first album was supposed to be one called Concrete that was actually um, uh, produced or mixed by Ross Robinson. And there seems to be, again, another really interesting story there that you guys were <laughs> unhappy with it, which kind of led you guys uh, up to, to being in the courts. Now I've still got that, that I think it was kind of ended up being released as a demo around 2003, I, I want to say, but, but that in and of itself is, I mean, that's quite a big story. I, you know, first record out of the gate, working with a guy like Ross Robinson at that time, who was building his name up to become, you know, for that period of time that the guy at Roadrunner, what was happening? It was just a, it was just a big disagreement. Um, you know, Ross Robinson was my friend for a long time before that. Uh, we entered into a deal with him to put out our first record called Concrete. Uh, and unfortunately, we couldn't come to an agreement on the deal. So we actually had to go to court and a judge decided that uh, that Ross Robinson owned the recordings, the masters, as they call it, and we owned our songs. In other words, we were able to go and re-record these songs for the record that turned out to be Sullivan the Machine. And Ross Robinson got to keep the masters, but he couldn't release them without uh without you know um getting getting a release from the publishing company because we mm -hmm. own the songs so he he was able to sell it to roadrunner records uh way back in 2002 
and Roadrunner Records decided to release it. Yeah, right. Okay. I wish he would have sold it to us, but I don't know. He sold it to Roadrunner Records. <laughs> and so are you guys on on good terms now, or is that kind of stayed up? Yeah. yeah. We've been on good terms for many years now, later on. Okay. Um, you know, Soul of a New Machine, which which I guess is considered the the first major label, label release, excuse me, um, you know, it, it sounds a little bit more like an industrial death metal record with, with a whole bunch of tinges of kind of napalm death <clears throat> scattered through it. And then by by ninety five, you do demanufacture, um, and and for people of my generation, you know this is this is an, an absolute classic. You know, I put it into the top ten albums of of all times. It's significantly more polished. It's it's tighter, and it really kind of launches what we would consider the the Fear Factory sound, which is still you know unique in the market. What happened between those years to kind of uh, evolve from uh, you know a kind of traditional death grind band with some industrial in influences into this uh you know i guess it's called industrial metal but it's it's really you know extremely fast picking uh, very very thrashy as you said it's really backed up by the rhythm section as well yeah um a lot happened in between there we we uh, after we pulled out so after we put out solving a machine we ended up going on a world tour and so we ended up getting a lot of experiences we ended up seeing what worked live what didn't work live you know these are just things that you learn as you go along watching other bands perform watching how they do it not only just live but just as a musician um and then me you know hooking up with reese fulber to do the re remixes fears the mind killer him and bill lieb did those remixes from they're from frontline assembly the band frontline assembly and i got to meet those guys and hook up with them and um you know, discuss on what I want, wanted the new remix to sound like. And at that time I was really into techno and rave and drum and bass and uh, electronic music and industrial. So I wanted them to do something like that. And when they came out with Fears of Mind Killer, I realized how much our music really fit with that, how our, the heavy guitars and the heavy drumming and the heavy vocals, a lot of vocals all work with that electronic stuff. That was a vision that we had already during Solve a New Machine. But the problem is that we just couldn't afford those kind of uh, computers and, and samplers at that time. So, uh, so when it came to doing demanufacture, we were actually writing with keyboards. You know, we had Reese come in during the recording of the record and add all his elements, and just the combination of the two just fuck the two mergers just worked. You know, you had basically the industrial thrash elements of my guitar riffs. You had the, you know electronic sounding uh you know live drums from raymond herrera our drums and guitars were syncopated as one uh you know the riffs sounded like machines uh then you had burton's beautiful melodic and heavy vocals combined the contrast between the two really made for something special and then you throw the keyboards on top of that that added a whole new element of dynamic and tone that you know some people might have not have heard it done that extreme Right. Sure, there was bands before us like God, Flesh and Ministry and Nine Snails and stuff like that and KMFDM that were sampling guitars, but nothing like that at the time. I felt I felt that we've took what those we I felt that we took what those industrial forefathers had did and combined all these other elements and took it to the next level, where we almost like to some people, we almost redefined industrial metal, what industrial metal should be like. And you know, I still people I still hear people doing it today. And it's a great compliment. Um, and I like it when people are 
can, can I like it when people can take something from our music, you know, and maybe it might inspire them to pick up an instrument and start playing keyboards, drums, guitar, you know, take up vocals or write songs like that and then take it to another level. You know, that's that to me is very complimenting and, 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 a, and a part of success that you're able to create a sound that people want to be inspired by. And is there anything um, of note that you're listening to these days at the moment? Um, uh, as far as what? Oh, I, I guess mean, a r- range of music. I, I mean, you know, in, in my earlier question, you, you talked about in the early 90s, how you're into listening to, to dance and trance. I mean, there's there's just a range of subgenres these days. So I'm just curious if there's anything else that you're listening to in the background or, or things that you found in the last few years. I'll give you I'll give you a throwback of, for instance, the song Martyr. Um, it's 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 basically a synth riff. It's like something you would hear at a rave. And so that was when I wrote that riff, that's what I was thinking of a synth mm-hmm. riff. So the riff is that's why it has that that thumping kind of techno bass kick drum like that stuff that early electronic dance shit stuff like that was really influential on me and it still is you know because people people are out there still doing new things and adding new elements and new breakbeats new breakdowns you know and i'm not talking about metal breakdowns i'm talking about techno breakdowns that really inspire me that i'm able to apply this music i've taken a lot of techno breakdowns and build-ups through my career and have applied them to all the records that i've done all of them you know i've been inspired from techno artists just as much as i've been inspired by metal artists and um that stuff still influences me today you know what i mean but i but we left such a big body of music that in some ways we can only we can some ways be inspired but we left what we did in the past but we you know i always try to improve every record and try to go somewhere different or try to add a new element into the into the record. And I think on this record, it's a very intense record. Aggression Continuum fits with the sound that you're listening to. Um, uh, you know, the keyboards really kind of dictate some of the songs. Like for instance, the first song called Recode, th- those keyboards are so dominant that it plays a big role in the song. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned trying to, uh, you know, move each each album, make it sound a, a, a little bit different. As I said, the period that I got into you guys was, was around uh, obsolete, but the album that sticks out to me now, sort of when I look at the entire discography of, of what the band has done, is is Digimortal. So, mm-hmm. when I was in my, uh, you know, uh, teens and high school years, um, it, it, new metal was dominant. It was the the biggest form of music on the planet at that point in time, and Digimortal sticks you know, much more in that sort of vein. And it's got more of that kind of, um, you know, bouncy tone uh, as, as opposed to some of the other records, which sound a little bit more straightforward. I still listen to it, but it's sort of in that time period. Now, you know, 20 years later or roughly about then, what do you think about that album looking back on it? Oh, I, th- I think it was a great album. I mean, we wanted, to, again, we wanted to go to a, a different level in production. You know what I mean? Um, we wanted to, you know, take it to somewhere different. We wanted to, we wanted to make it a more modern record of uh, that day and age because at that time, you know, technology was definitely shifting big time, right? Not only just in our day to day lives, but also in the recording process. 
So, um, yeah, we wanted to make a current record. That's what that was. Yeah, cool. So around this time period, uh, this is, I guess, where it starts getting into to all the drama. So, um, you know, from D manufacture <laughs> well, that, that you know of, that, that I know, you know of. Yeah, of course. So, so, yeah. uh, but yeah. I've got you here. So I've got to ask these questions because again, you know, um, 20 years of reading blabbermouth and getting that information kind of from, from that source, like even going back, I remember when uh, for a time period, blabbermouth was actually a, a sub uh, website for Roadrunner at the time when, when Roadrunner was still yep. pushing some things. And, and, you know, this information mm -hmm. was, was really big back then. So for a lot of us uh, of that time, you know, we, we know the, I guess the, the core original band of, of yourself, uh, Burton, Ray and Christian, um, you end up again, I'm, I'm asking you sometime, I think around 2002, you're, you're asked to leave or you exit the band and the band or the band breaks up for a period of time initially, and then sort of, um, regroups without your involvement so what, what's happening then <laughs> well um a lot of tension started to come during the writing process of digimortal because the record record label wanted us to to be a more commercial band they wanted to bring in outside producers to help us write these radio songs i wasn't having it i was against it the other three members were for it and so it, it there was a kind of a battle you know uh on that record that was behind the scenes, right? Um, but eventually on tour in 2002, it kind of blew up between me and Burton. We got into an argument, got into a fight. Um, I thought th I thought we patched it up, but apparently we, I guess he felt, it, it, I, if we didn't patch it up, I guess he took it differently. So he decided to quit the band uh, in 2002. So he quit the band, band broke up. I went on to do other things. Next thing you know, I don't know, six months later or so, they decided to put the band back together without me. So I was never asked to leave. It was just, I don't know how to say it, cut out. <laughs> cut out of the rebranding of, uh, of Fear Factory. And um, yeah, they put out two records. They put out Archetype and Transgression. I put out five records. Mm. Two Asasino records, two Divine Heresy records, and a Roadrunner All-Stars record. So I was pretty busy and I actually am kind of thankful that I was out of the band at the time because I wanted to be able to do the, all those other accomplishments. I also, uh, once again, was able to prove that I can go and start other bands, my own bands and be successful and do other, do other styles. You know, I had Brujeria, I had Divine, I mean, I had Asasino and I had Divine Heresy and then the road on all sorts thing. So that's a lot of records, you know, it's a lot of uh, music that I put out at that time. So I was very thankful to be out of the band. Mm. Then I came back into the band in 2009. Yes. And so th this kind of leads, uh, I'd like to talk about how you got back into the band, but also it said that kind of the latest thing is you, you talked about how are all these debates going over, you know, the trademark of the band. And I assume that that gets into larger disputes about intellectual property. So was it effectively yourself, Burton and Ray, who I guess were the, the primary trademark holders within the band that, that began this whole thing? Yeah, well, it was me that actually began the whole thing. My roommate came up with the name Fear Factory and I bought it off him. And then I cut everybody else in, Bert, Raymond. And then later on during Obsolete, I cut Christian in. Right. So okay. we, we were all four shareholders of the trademark at that time but things took a shift later on um 
you know, agreements, disagreements. And I'm talking about like, uh, you know, I'm talking about written agreements, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, legal agreements, um, which led to these lawsuits. But, you know, at the end of the day, I was able to uh, regain the name, full control of the trademark name, where it started. Um, and uh, here we are today. And is that what was going on at that point? So you're, you're, you're brought back in. Uh, how did the conversation start up? Because I think if I'm not mistaken, there's already some legal dealings taking place prior to 2009. I think this gets cleaned up to a fact or, or either way, it becomes you and uh, Burton who became, who become the, the controllers of the name, which I think leads to you being involved. Cause it was, um, again, it was something that came out of the blue for me watching what it just said, you know, Dino's back in the band. Christian Array are out and now it's you two driving it. So uh, how, how did, how did those things come about to reintroduce you to the bank? Cause that ultimately takes us up to today. Yeah. Well, you know, me and Bert ran into each other at the show at a concert and uh, he asked for my phone number. I gave him my phone number. He gave me a call and he wanted me to come back to the band. And what did I, and what did I think about that? And I said, I don't know. I got to think about it, you know? So months go by and he said, Hey, look, you know, I want to, I want to put all, I want to put all four members back into the band. The, the the classic lineup that most people know right and so i said i don't know so bert told me he was going to come out to california because at the time he was living in pennsylvania came out to california so he could talk to the other two members because he had some problems with them uh this is before me coming back in the band so he was coming down to have a meeting with them because he had some issues with them that he needed to work out right and one of the issues was which he stated in Blabbermouth uh, that uh, the issue was that, um, and I'm quoting Bert's words here, where Raymond was having an affair with Christian's wife, who was managing the band at the time. So he wasn't really happy about that. And he wanted to go address this issue before he moved further with these guys, uh, with Raymond and Christian. And so part of the thing was he wanted them to fire her, right? Mm-hmm. and uh, go with a different record company and have me back in the band. And so that was what was the meaning of the meaning was about fire her, me, me coming back into the band and uh, getting a new record company. And they disagreed on all three, three of those things. Mm. So that was where the first lawsuit came about. Burton sued those guys in court to bring them to a negotiation table. So we all fat, sat down and negotiated um, and it negotiated that uh, Bert and I would be the sole owners of the trademark. And those two guys would just be getting paid a percentage every, so, every month or whatever it was, right? Well, later on down the line, they ended up, the other two members ended up suing us uh, for a breach of contract because we got ripped off in Australia during the Soundwave Festival. I don't know if you remember that. I do remember that. Um, I'm trying to remember so the gentleman's, but, but that festival ran for about six or seven years before falling over again from, from debts. So I assume you guys were yeah. one of the one so, of the bands yeah. left over from it. Yeah. yeah, so because of that, that was part of the reason we got into a breach of contract lawsuit. We got sued by them for a million dollars and damages, blah, blah. And um, I had to go bankrupt because I didn't have that kind of money to pay anybody. So I went bankrupt and then I ended up having to go to trial in my bankruptcy because Raymond and Christian were uh, trying to say that my bankruptcy was filed fraudulently, mm. but I beat them in court and I was able to regain my, my half of the trademark. Um, 
and it didn't necessarily work out for Bert that way. And his half of the trademark went up for auction. Oh, really? Because, okay. yeah, during his bankruptcy, it went up for auction. And so it was up. You had to bid on it. Anybody could bid on it. You could have bid on it. Your mom could have bid on it. Like, it's like you were on eBay bidding for a pair of shoes, you know? And um, I happened to be the highest bidder. And so I won. And uh, that's how I regained the name. So did, did you have to, I mean, take out loans? You're talking about bankruptcy and at the same time, then going out and bidding to be able to restore the, the trademark under yourself. Yes. I had to go out and take out loans for sure. Yeah. Right. Yep. Okay. Um, Soundwave has a bit of a notorious history behind that because it's also, it's the same festival out here that ended up getting Lombardo kicked off Slayer because prior to Slayer coming out here, he, he went through the same thing of sort of contract holdups and negotiation. And that's what ended up leading to Paul Bostoff coming back into the band. So it's got a, it's got an interesting kind of, uh, I guess, I guess history, but as a festival, I think it ended up getting too big, too quick. And as you said, I can't remember the fellow's name who, who's run it, but I don't think he's done anything since. I really not mention his name. I know his name, but it's crazy i can't think of another band that has gone through it or band member that's gone through this unique situation yeah you know uh it's it's been crazy it's all i could say (laughs) it it has um it was you know it's been very stressful you know Mm. um it definitely put a strain on relationships it's it's you know probably one of the reasons why uh you know bert's not here that's I mean, he stated that in his in his departure speech. Uh, you know, he blames the judicial system and he blames all the other three members, which is myself, Raymond, and Christian. Um, and he takes no responsibility. But hmm. in reality, it's all four of our responsibility, and it's all four of our things that we had to to go through, or not had to, but we went through. Hmm. So we all played a big part in to blame of what happened here. So it, in the face of that, I mean, you know, when, when you're a kid or teenager, teenager, you get into a band to have, have fun. Is, is it fun for you again? It's always been fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, writing music, creating music has always been fun for me. You know, it's, a, it's an obsession for me. I'm, I, I obsess over tones, drums, guitars, bass, keyboards, vocals, production. I obsess over all that. And I, and I could see sometimes where that obsession may get on the nerve of people. But, you know, like I said, I, I demand a certain standard of quality of music or tone or production. I, I demand it, you know what I mean? And so that's probably where some people have a, have a, have a hard time. You know, I never took shortcuts when it comes, when it comes to music, you know, you know, I, I obsess over the writing, the lyrics, all of the above, you know, so and i guess, I guess for how it is for the the last of us then you, you mentioned how um you, you know you and ross are back on speaking terms do you have any any dialogue um, with it's either been years. it's been years it's been years don't say it like it's just just happened we, we've been on speaking terms for you've got to realize this happened in 1991 mm. okay we were on speaking terms like a few years a couple years later so it's not like this we're just on speaking terms you know what i mean this has been We've been on speaking terms for 25 years. So, and and sorry, what, what I was going to use that as a segue to is uh, have you been able no, to? The repent? only reason why I say that, the only reason why I say that, because media can take that and they could say, oh, Dino's on speaking terms with Ross, Ross, but it's been, you know, years. 
I, I get that. And I'm sure that's what I've been reading for years effectively in, in, in these, these posts. And that, it's that's just the way you say it. Like it's like, it's something new now. You know what I mean? Fair it's enough. not. <laughs> um, so I, I get that. Okay. So, uh, where I was trying to segue this to is, is, uh, are you on any sort of terms with either, uh, Raymond or Christian these days then? Would you be? Well, no, but <laughs> as you said, maybe <laughs> sometimes you can get over these sorts of things because I know um, uh, Raymond seemed to disappear from the scene completely. I think Christian ended up getting involved in a, a few other bands, but I, I've not heard anything, uh, any other projects <laughs> from Ray or anything beyond that. Yeah. Um, no, I don't know. I don't have the knowledge of what Ray's doing right now. I haven't spoken to him in 18 years, so I don't know. Mm. Um, it's been a long time. Sure. We saw each other in court, but what, you know, we don't, you don't speak. You got, you got attorneys on each side, you know, battling, you know, it's not like you say, Hey, good day, mate. How you doing? It's like, <laughs> it's not like, yeah, you want to go get a beer after we fuck each other. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> no, uh, it's not like, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing like that. And I'm, I, 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 it still boggles my mind of the way that Burton decided to depart the band, you know, mm. all the drama that he caused, you know, in this public media, it was just really uncalled for unprofessional. He didn't need to do that. He didn't need to quit, mm. but for whatever reason, for whatever his reasons are, those are his reasons and those are his decisions. And that's the decision he has to live with. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. Um, I was interested in the period. So, we, you know, we, the, the band, I think you've been talking about looking for a, a new singer. And I guess we'll get into a little bit of the, the touring aspects or if that's even possible now. But um, one of the other things that, that was interesting to me at the time when you came back into the fold in 2009 was that the rhythm section, um, uh, Byron Stroud and Gene Hoglin ended up mm -hmm. joining you. And um, I know Devin Townsend's been on record uh, numerous times talking about how Fear Factory was a huge influence over Strapping Young Lad. And I just wanted to know if that was part of the reason or how they brought in because, um, again, I, I know that sort of rhythm section from the discography of, of Strapping, who I was a, a, another massive fan of at the time. Well I, well, I believe Byron was still in the band when I was out of the band. He was on Archetype and Transgression. That's right, yeah. Um, he was still, he was in a band. He was in the live touring band at that time. Um, so I believe that when Raymond and Christian had said no to Burton's, uh, things that he wanted, wanted to change, sorry, picking up, know, right? uh, wanted to change. Um, I believe it was even to say, Hey, Byron, you're still in the band. You know? So Byron was still in the band. He's like, well, we we could bring Gene into the band. And that's how Gene gotten into the band. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, so now, you know, we're on to the new album, you know, we talked about uh, Burton's de departure, how, how it seemed to be quite unwarranted through through a media release. Where does this leave you guys now in terms of, um, you know, seeking out someone to, to fill that role for the future? Oh, it leaves me in a great position because there's so many talented people out there that I discovered. And, uh, you know, it's like, if I want to do other projects, I'm going to have a choice of other singers to do other projects with, which is really cool because there's a lot of, uh, you know, females and males are, are just excellent for this position. Um, but due to COVID restrictions, you know, some of the people can actually come here with me in California, you know, get, get them in the room, get them in a jam room, jamming with the band. You know, it's all about chemistry, you know, see if we can get along with the person, see if we like the person, getting to know the person. You know, it's, um, it's, that's probably the, one of the most important things now for us, right? Because there's a lot of talented people, and we chose a few people uh, to come down. So now it's about the, it's kind of like the American Idol process. They got to go yep. through each um, 
they got to go through each era of Fear Factory and sing these songs with us in a jam room, mm. right? Then, of course, we got to go out and have a beer and have a good time, see if we like the person, you know? Yeah, yeah. The number one thing is to get somebody drunk, see how they are. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and so how, how does that affect it? You, you know, I think the, the schedule for most bands is, is that you record and then you tour. That's not clearly not possible in a lot of markets. In, you know, down here in Australia, we're still going through you know, sort of semi lockdown as new cases pop up. Is, is there a plan for how you guys, you know, try to go out and, and promote and, and sell the album? Well, right now it's just doing, you know, all online stuff and stuff like that. But, um, but, you know, and releasing videos and playthrough videos and stuff like that. But, you know, we're not going to tour till next year. We're going to be safe and wait till everybody, wait till hopefully the, the, you know, 90% of all this passes, you know, there's still a lot of countries going through a lot of different stuff. So, you know, there's certain places we can't go, you know, and there's certain places that are going to have more restrictions than others. Mm. So we're going to play it safe and wait till next year and just hopefully things will change by then. Okay. Um, I also want to ask you, you know, going back to that time period, you're one of the early guys that I know that was one of the adopters into the seven string guitars. And, and for, for a couple of decades, you were associated with, with Ibanez and, and that has only recently finished up the process and you've moved on to um, a new supplier. I think it was based in Perth down here with us. So yeah. um, just want to talk a little bit about, I guess, I guess the sound, you know, I, I had the chance to speak to uh, JF from Cataclysm and he was talking about the, the, the extreme evolution and quality of seven string guitars. So I guess being at the forefront of that revolution, you know, what you think and where they were and where they are now. Well, back in the 94, I believe was one of the, one of the first ones that came out. There was a lot of other musicians playing it. There was like a, Trey from Morbid Angel, I believe the guys in Corn were playing at that time. You know, I didn't get into it until uh, after I recorded D Manufacturer because the, 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 the guitar company, Ivanez, was, were seeking musicians to play this instrument. They were looking for, you know, musicians at that caliber to help promote this guitar, right? And so they approached me uh, in 95 because D Manufacturer definitely made a big explosion everywhere, right? And so it was getting us a lot of attention. And I tuned my six string guitars down to B standard. And that's exactly what the seven strings were tuned to at that time. So they had approached me and I instantly said, yeah, well, it took me about a week of jamming on the guitar. And I said, yeah, but to me, I was trying to figure out a way of how to change the guitar because it came with these passive pickups. I believe there were DiMaggio's um, in the pickup, uh, the pickups, the standard stock pickups. And I noticed that, you know, it had a neck pickup and a bridge pickup. And I noticed that when you hit the open B chord, that it sounded like other bands, like it sounded like horn. So I was like, well, I didn't want to sound like that because that's not how I sound. I needed an active pickup. So I was contacting EMG pickups to asked them to make a pickup that would fit this guitar and they couldn't figure it out for a few months until one day they called me they said hey we got to figure out but you're going to have to route your pickup hole pickup hole and i said okay sure and they go here we're going to send you this pickup have ibanez route you a hole so said so they sent me a pickup they removed the bridge pickup because I, I didn't i'm sorry they removed the neck pickup because i didn't need the neck pickup they filled that up and they basically made me guitar with the one pickup, but they also routed the pickup uh, hole to fit that EMG pickup. So I was able to change the guitar, the look, the cosmetic, 
the sound. And I was very happy about that. You know, that was, um, even though Steve Vai or other people may not recognize that I did that with the seventh string, I did. And so it's, it's funny because now that pickup is like the standard size for active pickup. Mm. You know, a company called Fishman, Seymour Duncan, and, uh, you know, even Lundgren pickups and a lot of pick, pickup companies and a lot of guitar companies changed their configuration in a guitar because of that pickup. And um, uh, a lot of people, I guess a lot of people don't give me any credit for pushing for that to happen. Um, but yeah, that's what happened. And uh, that definitely changed the sound of my seventh string of not wanting to sound like the new metal acts that were using it. Yeah, fair enough. And do, are seven strings fairly ubiquitous across the, the heavy community now? Because I think even bands like Meshuggah moved on to eight strings, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Meshuggah was one of the early guys, early early uh, bands that were playing the seven string as well. Um, yeah, they moved on to eight strings a, a, a few albums back. But yeah. Okay. Um, three decades. So as I said, uh, Soul of a New Machine is 92. I wanted to ask you about, uh, because again, my, my, my heyday is sort of that late 90s period when, when OzFest ruled, ruled the world with summer tours. Having been you know, in the crux of it for three decades, how do you think heavy metal itself has changed? You know, did it peak at some point? Do you find, um, uh, is, it, is it healthy as an industry uh, at the moment? I believe that uh, metal in general is healthy because, you know, everybody's always bringing in new different elements and combining new different things together and uh, progressing this sound, you know. Um, but at the same time, even some of the older bands are now are even progressing and, and keep in still retaining their old traditional style, but also adding, adding new elements. And I think production wise, uh, structure wise, and just tones and different gear uh, technology where it's, you know, where it's making it easier for to people to write music across the world, you know, not being in the same room, just a lot of things that took took into factor of where the music has progressed. And I think it's very healthy. I do understand why people ask that question because, you know, of stuff that like Gene, Gene Simmons has said that rock is dead and stuff like that. And he's right to a certain degree because, you know, rock is not exactly like where hip hop or commercial, commercial uh, urban music is, you know, because those people are making millions and millions and millions of dollars off video streams, off living lavish lifestyles, flashing their money, girls, cars, houses. Um, back what, that's what the 80s hair metal bands were doing back in the day, you know what I mean? Mm. So a lot of that's changed. A lot of metal heads are a lot more conservative, which I was really surprised that it's, it's changed into that, you know? Really? Now, oh yeah, you can't have, you think I put a video out with a girl shaking her ass and metalhead community wouldn't fucking attack me of course yeah. okay macedon macedon did that uh, a few years back they put a, a video out like that and people were just so mad about it you know a lot of a lot of metalheads have gone conservative compared to what it was back in the night back in the 80s and even parts of the 90s yeah, right. you know this um you know it's almost in some ways uh you know it's just just that's just how it progressed you know what i mean People are more aware of, 
you know, the, the Me Too type movement and, uh, you know, racism and sexism and all that stuff. And people take all that into consideration now. It's, it's interesting that you talk about it in, in that fashion because, um, you know, I guess uh, last time I saw Bruheri, you guys were out here a couple of years ago with Napalm Death. Uh, Trump was the um, president. I remember you guys were I on wasn't stage. In the so band. I wasn't not, in the band. Not then when, when, when they're touring, but they're still, um, you know, they push these chants of, you know, fuck Donald Trump and all that. And the, the whole the whole audience gets into it. So it's it's interesting to me that you, that you say the, um, the, the metal landscape's more conservative, but this seems to be, I guess uh, the 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 neoliberal landscape. So, do you think that's kind of that's across guess, the board these days? I guess that's that's a way of putting a word uh, or just trying to describe it. Yeah. Um, don't get me wrong. You know, as long as it's all safe and not re- for reals. I mean, look at Cannibal Corpse. You know, they get away with everything songs like "fuck <laughs> fuck with a knife" yeah. and "butcher at birth," "butcher yeah. at birth," and you know, they 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 can still get away with it because it's still considered somewhat fantasy and i guess they're kind of like the grandfathers of that so they've been grandfathered in you mm. know what i mean um but nowadays you can't say a lot of things on the internet because people are going to attack you for it yeah of course and that's uh, where i see the conservativeness uh, last one before we, we finish off today uh, i just wanted to ask you about uh you know because it's the theme uh, of your of your music you know industrialization uh, robotics government have you watched any of these Boston Dynamics videos about the, you know, artificial intelligence robot dogs and stuff? It's I've, I can't, I find it very terrifying that you've got these robotic monsters running around. And I just uh, I wanted dogs. to see if you've seen this. Yes, I want to see if you've seen that because it of is course. really kind of, you know, leading into a lot of the topics that, that you guys have, have been on about for, for decades. Well, yeah, for sure. I've been watching all that stuff and they're getting closer and closer and closer and closer. You know, pretty soon it's going to be... Uh, we're going to have robots among us that are going to be, you know, patrolling the streets, walk, you know, why not? Because if you kill a robot, it's no big deal. It's just a robot, right? It's mm-hmm. not human. So sending it, sending in a police dog with a video scanner, walking into, uh, you know, somebody could be held up in a house or somebody, some guy inside the building could have a gun. You can send in that robot dog so they could see what's going on and boom, go on right. attack. I so think even yeah, your, your latest videos is, is more on the theme of like drones and war. Correct. Hmm. That's post-apocalyptic. It's after the, after the war and blah, blah, blah. But a lot of, um, like for instance, Perry Farrell came out with an article today on Blabbermouth saying that AI will not be, will not take over humans. And maybe uh-huh. not in his lifetime, but hmm. it is definitely going towards that. The singularity process. Um, you know, we are getting closer and closer. Uh, we, we are already slaves to technology because, you know, people can't live without their iOS devices. They can't live without their phones for a minute. You know what I mean? Mm, people take I their do. phones and to take shits. People take their phones into showers. <laughs> you know what I mean? They yeah. take their phones everywhere. They have it in their pocket, in their purse, wherever. They can't mm. live without it. People cannot live without it because it just became another, you know, another hand. You know another part of our body um and because of those reasons uh, uh that we're going to be um we're, we're, we're not gonna it's slowly but surely going to happen we're not even going to know like it's just going to be mm. introduced slowly and slowly and slowly and then boom it's here and because of our laziness it's going to take over and our and because of our dependency on it it's going to take over mm. fair enough uh that's so- my theory 
Dino, your your new album is it's scheduled for June now, is it? So we've got a couple weeks before it's officially released. June eighteenth. June eighteenth is uh, Aggression Continuum. Uh, thanks very much for talking to me, and and thank you for as I said, I'm sure you didn't want to rehash all this stuff, but again, I appreciate it because I've, as you said, been on the sidelines reading these headlines for years. So I appreciate you kind of clarifying the air for me. Yeah, um, you know, I don't mind answering the questions because these, this is what happened. This is this this is. This is the story behind the record. This is my story that's been going on, not just with the record, but for a long time, to be honest with you. Um, and it's a, it's a very interesting story. It's very intriguing. Sure, there's a lot more details, but I know that we don't have that much time for all those details. And it's really hard to, to explain the, the legalities of all of it because, you know, a lot of, not a lot of, you have to be a lawyer to really understand some of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Even I, still to this day i'm trying to understand all of it and it's oh, I, I can't even imagine getting pinned down not only to to find a settlement but oftentimes to be embroiled in legal fees that that outdo the actual compensation that you get for some of this stuff sometimes oh yeah hell yeah, yeah. but you know thanks to all the fans and everybody who's came through thanks thanks to all of them that made this happen records coming out you've already heard two songs uh Rico, i'm sorry uh disruptor and fuel injected suicide machine the next single will be out June 11th and it's going to be called Recode and there will be a part two to the first video of Disruptor. Excellent. Well, thank you very much again for your time and, and all the best until perhaps we speak again. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate it. Cheers. This episode is brought to you by Romulus IT, offering fast, affordable remote support for common computer problems, including troubleshooting, health checks, virus removal, and software support. Visit RomulusIT.com to get your computer back on track.